Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine is in Europe colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up to our present time. All of Cologne as well as large parts of Europe are completely Christianized in the 12th century. All of Cologne and Europe? Not entirely. A small but significant religious minority driven out of their homeland in ancient times and scattered all around the world lived in many places and cities of the then known world. Also in Cologne, of course, which can show the oldest evidence of a Jewish community in a city north of the Alps, in document from 321 AD, when Emperor Constantine had allowed the Cologne city center to admit Jews to this institution. Therefore, the time has come that we take a closer look at the Jewish community of the 12th century in Cologne, but of course, we also take a look at the decades to come. We will note, as dramatic as the already past crusader pogrom of 1096 was for the Jewish community, at the least from the middle of the 12th century, Jewish life flourished again in Cologne. And it was to remain so until the outbreak of the plague in the middle of the 14th century. Even the power of the rising citizens literally leaned on the Jewish community. I don't mean that as a metaphor, but really in the truest sense of the word, it leaned on it. You will see what I mean in the course of the episode. How exactly did this and much more unfold? We'll find out right after the intro. The history of the Jewish community of Cologne is unfortunately not always quite tangible in the first centuries of its existence. It was documented at the latest from the year 321 AD, what does not mean that in this year Jews first lived in Cologne. They will have been in the city long before that. What is not clear until today, what happened to the Jewish community after the Germanic Franks took over the city in the 5th century? Had the community previously fled to other areas of the crumbling Roman Empire? Had they remained in the city after all and continued to characterize everyday life? Unfortunately, we do not know. A cloak of silence covers it for the next centuries. What we know is that especially from the 9th century, there was Jewish migration from the Mediterranean to the Rhine region. Probably there was a synagogue in Cologne already around the year 1000 under Archbishop Heribert. It is even more probable that there was already a synagogue here in the 9th century. However, the synagogue mentioned in Heribert's time was a new building. Excavations in a Jewish quarter at today's City Hall Square also see other signs of Jewish life at this time. However, it is not until the year 1075 that we again learn of a Jewish community in Cologne in historical written sources. Thus, the Vita Anonis states that on the day of Anno's death, the Archbishop Anno's death, December 4th, 1075, or Saturday, so Sabbath, the Jews in their quarter would have mourned the Cologne city ruler who acted as a patron for them. A synagogue in Cologne is also mentioned here in the written sources in 1075. 
Well documented is the pogrom against the Jewish community of Cologne in 1096, to which we had dedicated a separate episode here. If you need a refresher, then listen again to episode 49. While the Archbishop had initially managed to hide his Jews in the surroundings of Cologne, many of them had been tracked down and killed by bands of murderers. Why have I emphasized his Jews so strangely? You will find out in a moment. By the middle of the 12th century, the pogrom of 1096 was already several decades in the past. No one within the Jewish community will have forgotten the events, no matter whether as a survivor, a later-born, or a later immigrant. The memories and the atrocities of the time will have burned themselves deep into the collective memory. And yet, Cologne's Jewish community flourished during this period. The synagogue was rebuilt in 1115 at the latest, after it was destroyed in 1096. The good thing is also that we have here sources of the Jewish contemporary witnesses. Thus, the Jew Solomon Bar Simpson wrote in 1140 in his chronicle created by him, quote, Cologne, beautiful city, where the assembly of scholars met, and since merit comes about through merit, from there went life, livelihood, and firm right for all our brothers scattered at all ends. End quote. That is definitely a positive testimony for Cologne, especially when you consider what was done to the Jewish community here in 1096. The Jewish quarter is even larger than it was at that time before the pogrom. Where exactly is the quarter again? It now encompasses a large rectangle, so to speak. To the north it adjoins today's Kleine Budengasse, to the east it adjoins the Old Market, to the south it adjoins the street Obenmaßpforten, and to the west it adjoins the street Untergottschmied, so under the gold, below the goldsmiths. Thus, for the most part of it, and I know if you are not from Cologne, this was not helping at all, but as just said, but the quarter was located exactly on the side of the Praetorium, which was located here in ancient times and the early Middle Ages, the Roman governor's palace. Its foundation walls, however, lay now in the layer of earth. On it, the Jewish community built its quarter here in the Middle Ages. While the historic city hall of Cologne, as well as the associated Spanish buildings stand today, the northern and eastern part of the Jewish quarter was once located. Street names such as Judengasse, so Jewish Alley, which runs alongside the historic city hall, still bear witness to this today. Adjacent to the south nowadays is the Weyraf Richards Art Museum. In 1135, the Shrine Book of St. Lawrence, which was responsible for the Jewish quarter as well, listed about 30 houses owned by Jews here in this quarter. Then, in 1170, there were already about 50 houses. However, the number of houses does not, of course, say anything about the number of people living there. For 1130, recent research assumes around 90 people. With growing prosperity, however, the number of people per household probably also increased. Thus, in 1170, it is assumed that there were already about 500 people of the Jewish faith living in this quarter. With a city population around 15 to 20,000, this is not a small number of a minority in a city. The community grew in the 12th century mainly due to immigration. 
With the economic prosperity of the city, Cologne was naturally a destination of Jewish migration. Thus, for the 12th century, we learn from historical sources that they came mainly from Andernach, Duisburg, Koblenz, Frankfurt, Main, Trier, Würzburg, and even England. The latter were probably mainly merchants since Cologne and London had the best trade relations. By the way, the topic of trade with England and Cologne is something extremely interesting which needs its own episode. But if you now think that the Jewish quarter was a ghetto, where the Jews were locked up by the Christian majority population here on the former side of the Roman governor's palace, you are mistaken. Jews were not forbidden to buy houses in other parts of the city. There were no restrictions from the municipal side at that time. However, one of the things that moved people to live close to each other was the requirement that a Jew should not walk more than 2,000 steps on Shabbat. But since you have to go to the synagogue on that day, your house should be close to it. Otherwise, it caused trouble with the rabbi. Since the Jewish faith also has strict dietary rules, people were just as happy to live together to shop at the Jewish baker in the quarter. But of course it should not be disregarded that people lived together, mainly in foreign countries, in order to live in a known community and culture. This is an absolutely understandable observation of immigrants and one that has been made throughout history. Just think of Chinatown, Germantown, Little Italy and many uh, cities in the United States. On the other hand, it was not directly forbidden for Christians to settle here in the Jewish quarter as well. And this will show us later still the Richardseche, the brotherhood of the rich citizens of Cologne, that they will have some property here in this Jewish quarter. And what if you wanted to move away as a Jew from Cologne, perhaps because you had heard somewhere else that you could live better there? Then you were allowed to leave as a Jew for a fee, of course, that you had to pay to the archbishop, of course. But remember that most Christian subjects in Europe did not have such freedom of movement. They couldn't just walk away paying a fee. Cologne's Jews were important merchants at this time and successfully competed with the Frisians. Of course, it also makes sense somehow. Scattered throughout Europe, North America and the Middle East, Jews in almost every settlement, city or empire could draw on existing Jewish communities and thus local trade networks. As a thriving business location and trading center, this naturally attracted Jewish immigrants to Cologne. The further development, which was to massively restrict the professional activities of the Jews from the 13th century onwards, I will briefly illuminate at the end. At this point, however, Jews are mainly traders who have friends, partners and relatives who have access to local markets in every known place in the known world through what was then their global trading network, who are familiar with local customs as well. It is still a time when later trading powers like Venice or Genoa do not yet have large trading bases all across the Mediterranean like later in the 13th century on the Balkan coast or as I said in the Mediterranean, or even in Crimea. Christian merchants often have a harder time than the Jewish counterparts far away in mainly non-Christian areas, because they don't have local Christian communities living there. This gives Jewish traders an advantage. They can always go to their 
local Jewish community in those places far away from their home. Here in Cologne, the archbishop in particular no longer wanted to miss his Jews. Why do I emphasize the his so much? In Roman Cologne, the Jews had almost certainly been free citizens. How else could they have been appointed to the municipal senate of Cologne, as suggested by Emperor Constantine in 321? Since the early Middle Ages and the Christianization of large parts of Europe, however, the Jews were considered foreign bodies in the eyes of the now Christian majority population. They were therefore subject to the protection of the Frankish kings and later emperors. However, they had to pay for this protection with additional duties and taxes. When Archbishop Bruno was also Duke of Lorraine in the 950s, his imperial brother Otto I transferred to him several sovereign rights that remained permanently in the possession of the Archbishop of Cologne. In addition to market and custom rights, these included the so-called Judenregal, the right to tax Jews and the duty to protect them in return. Of course, the Archbishop did not want to be deprived of this income. It was income that he did not have to share with anyone, not to the emperor, not to the troublesome citizens who in the meantime wanted to have a say in so many things regarding their city, and more and more often the Jews became indispensable financial backers for the archbishop. After all, the archbishops of Cologne were now pursuing an extremely secular territorial policy. Along the Rhine, but also in Westphalia, they successfully tried to expand the territory and secure their rule, above all by building castles. And that, right, is really expensive. The archbishop needed money all the time. How it was exactly what the amount and regularity of taxes and duties is difficult to say for the 12th century. However, from the 13th century, we know that on June 21st and on Christmas each year, Archbishop Engelbert, for example, the second expected to be paid the protection money by the Jewish community. Being under the protection of the king or even the archbishop sounds really good, doesn't it? The only problem is, and this was especially the case in 1096, how does an emperor or king want to protect all the Jews in his empire at once? Emperor Hamu IV, yes. The emperor who was kidnapped as a child by Anno II had not been able to do anything against the murders of 1096. He was stuck in Italy and could not return across the Alps. And even if he had, then Henry IV might have been able to prevent the killing locally in one city, the one he stayed at. But in all the other cities, there would have been hardly any rescue possible. The king could not be everywhere at the same time, and also the Archbishop of Cologne was often away from the city. But when he was on the spot, he could certainly make a difference. This becomes clear in the middle of the 12th century. From 1146, the Second Crusade starts. Between September and October of that year, the cleric and founder of numerous Cistercian monasteries, Bernard of Clairvaux, I can't speak French, you know that, called on the archbishop and his citizens in Cologne to join a crusade. 
the Archbishop of Cologne, Arnold, probably knowing that what this could mean for the Jewish community of Cologne, acted immediately. He had the entire Jewish community of Cologne brought to the Wolkenburg, the castle in the Siebengebirge, the low mountain range, near Königswinter, very close to the today's city of Bonn. We had discussed this castle, Wolkenburg, only recently here in the podcast. There, the Jews were to hold out until the marauding crusader armies had departed and left the Rhineland. Of course, the archbishop made the Jewish community pay well for this good deed. As soon as the crusader armies had departed, they were to make him a gift of money. If contrary to expectations, they should die despite having their own castle to defend, the archbishop had the right to seize all the property of the Jews in that quarter. How nice and heartwarming. In this way, however, and also because the Jewish population is authorized to bear arms, the Jewish community survives the threatening pogrom of 1146. The Crusaders are of course enraged, but they do not set fire to the Jewish quarter this time, since the Archbishop certainly has his ministerials under arms to guard it. Remember what I just said, the Archbishop wants to seize all their property in case they die in the Wolkenburg castle. But the Jews are stuck in the fortress for a period of time. Nevertheless, there were two Jewish victims in Königswinter near the castle. Two Jewish boys who lived in Königswinter, so local boys, not Jews from Cologne, that lived in that village below the castle, had probably gone to the vicinity of the castle expecting to find new like-minded playmates in that castle. Once there, they were brutally murdered by a crusader who had not managed to get inside the castle. When the Archbishop of Cologne learned of this, he had the Christian crusader who had committed the bloody deed seized and immediately executed. Hello there, just a short break. I've been into late medieval, early modern European history lately. Especially the history of Burgundy, a country that no longer exists on the map of Europe, but once it was a really big country between Germany, medieval Germany, and the Kingdom of France. Why does it not exist anymore, and what traces does it leave in history, you can learn in this podcast. I can only recommend you. Let's listen to the trailer of this podcast that was so nice to make a little promo swap with me. Enjoy. The show will continue shortly after that. Hello, welcome, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities, and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, 
A History of Valois Burgundy. Back to the Jewish Quarter. In addition to the numerous residential buildings, there were also communal and public buildings in the quarter. A community hall, the synagogue, a hospital, the mikvah, a bathhouse, and a bakehouse. These are also clearly evidenced by the excavations carried out in recent years on the present-day town hall square, the site of the medieval Jewish quarter, and also the place of the Roman Praetorium in ancient times. A synagogue should not be seen merely as a Jewish variant of a Catholic parish church. In addition to religious services, the building fulfilled numerous other functions. Scholars met here and had discussions. If the community court had imposed an oath or atonement as a sentence in the community hall, this was carried out in the synagogue. There had probably already been a synagogue here in Carolingian times, but it gave way to a new building around the year 1000. Whoever wanted to enter the synagogue had to pass through a portal on the northern side, flanked on each side by a blue stone column. Through it, one entered directly into the main room. It was 40 meters long, 9 meters wide, and 10 meters to the ceiling. Whoever turned to the left after entering, and thus looked towards the Rhine, to the east, and thus also towards Jerusalem, looked at the Torah shrine. The upper floor of the synagogue was used as an archive and writing room. Especially the furnishings from the late 13th century are known and well studied. The interior walls were simple. The floor had tiles made of clay in different colors. Also in this period, a 5 meter high almemor was placed in the center of the synagogue. That's a reading pulpit which was not made by the Jews themselves in 1280, and now we jumped ahead in time just for that single fact, but by the craftsmen of the cathedral workshop. This is really interesting because the craftsmen there were of course Christians, and one could also have thought that they already had full order books with the new construction of today's Cologne Cathedral in the 13th century, which had just begun at that time. Sorry for jumping ahead. Uh, this much, but I just wanted to mention that fact. Back to the 12th century. How do we know exactly what the synagogue looked like here in the Jewish quarter? It is because it was not destroyed, despite further devastation in 1348. I do not want to get too far ahead of myself, but at the beginning of the 15th century, after the final expulsion of the Jewish community, the building was taken over by the council of the city of Cologne, which did not yet exist in our timeline here. To put it this way, the building then had a checkered history as a town hall, chapel, warehouse, or home to a man's choral society. It was then bombed to rubble during the Second World War. But since the building remained virtually unchanged until 1941, much is known about it. There are photos of it, of course. I'll see if I can find any of them and then put them on the homepage thehistoryofcologne.com and on social media in the upcoming days. After the war, it was decided not to rebuild the chapel and form a medieval synagogue. So only in the post-war period the current town hall square was created, which, however, did not exist until 1945, but was completely built on. Just as a small side blow against the critics of the Museum Mikwa, which is currently being built on the former 
uh, town hall square, which will bring Jewish history to life again at this place, with underground access to the medieval foundation of all those buildings of the Jewish quarter, which I have mentioned here, including the Roman governor's palace from antiquity. Although it is documented only from the 13th century, but probably in the 12th century, there was already a separate adjacent women's synagogue. The same is true for a dance and celebration house where people did just that, danced and celebrated like at weddings or birthdays. We had already briefly mentioned the mikvah in an earlier episode, the Jewish ritual bath. Since it was used only for religious purposes of hygiene, there was an additional regular normal bathing house. In the 12th century, the mikvah was rebuilt in the form that can still be seen today under the town hall square and then also sometime when the new Jewish museum mikvah is finished. However, it is now believed that there was already a ritual bath before that time. The mikvah is sunk 17 meters into the ground. It takes 79 steps to reach the very bottom. The reason for this is as follows. Literally translated, mikvah means falling water. It was used for ritual cleansing, for example before wedding or after giving birth. The rules were that for the spiritual purification, it was not allowed to bring the water artificially in here in this place. Meaning it was not allowed to be water that had previously been pumped or discharged here with buckets from somewhere. Therefore, they had dug deep into the earth until they came across groundwater. So natural water which seeped here. Unlike their Christian neighbors, the Jews do not bury their dead within the city directly next to their house of worship. The Jewish cemetery is located outside the city, in the south, the so-called Judenbüchel. The Judenbüchel was used well into the 17th century, near the southern city gate to Bonn. Today, this is uh, the city quarter of Raderberg, near Bonnerstraße. It remained de facto until the 20th century, even though by then no one had been buried there for a long time. In 1936, however, the Nazis ordered the abandonment of this area and in the same year built their wholesale market, which still stands today. The gravestones and bones still there were moved to the new Jewish cemetery in the northwest of the city. In this way, the Nazis wanted to hide the centuries-long history of the Jewish community in the Middle Ages. Back to the Middle Ages. What was nasty? People sentenced to death at the Archbishop's High Court were never executed within the city. That was not allowed. But outside the city, that's where the executions happened. An execution was really a public event that many attended. The deceased was pushed three times against the so-called blue stone at the cathedral courtyard inside the city. This was a slate slab walled with stones. You know, public acts as an expression of rule were very important until the invention of the microphone or mass media. This was so that everyone even in last row at the cathedral courtyard could see how the high court had judged. The thrusting three times was an act that everyone understood. The defendant had been sentenced to death. Before that, also as a symbolic act, a wooden stick had been broken over the head of the condemned. 
But, well, what has this to do with the Jewish cemetery now? The condemned were brought here to the Jewish cemetery and were then here executed. Of course, the Jewish community did not like this and was not until 1266 that they were successful with this demand. In that year, the archbishop forbade by decree that the area was to be used exclusively as a Jewish burial place. From then on, executions usually took place on the Milatenfeld, the Milaten field west of the city. You can't really translate that into English. Well, you can, but then it gets complicated with sick people and something like that. We will get to that another time. Ironically, Cologne's large and first central cemetery was then built on this site on Milatenfeld, the site of the former execution uh, place around 1800. So today's Cologne Big Cemetery is also a place where people used to be executed. <laughs> well, both things include death, I guess. Many Jewish quarters in medieval cities had a protective wall. Even if they were located in the middle of the city, as in Cologne, in this way they formed a city within the city. But this is not so in Cologne in the 12th century. The quarter did not have walls at that time. Walking from north to south, let's say you started Cologne Cathedral and you want to go to St. Mary in the capital, you can just walk through that quarter. This pleases especially the rich and powerful citizens of the city. The members of the Richardseche and the magistrates always have to pass through the Judengasse, the Jewish alley, to get to their meeting house, the house of the rich, which is in the middle of the Jewish quarter. The house is theoretically located at the neighboring Old Market, but the entrance is here in Judengasse, the Jewish alley. But why is the house of the Richardseche here in the Jewish quarter at all? Presumably, this had pragmatic reasons. The Jewish quarter was quasi, in the eyes of the Christians, neutral ground, a kind of Switzerland in the middle of the city. If the house had been built in any other place in the city, there would certainly have been trouble. Remember that Cologne was separated into districts that I call wards here. The corresponding ward in which the Richardseche house would be located would have been upgraded compared to the other wards in the city. This would certainly have caused um, some anger among Cologne citizens because they would now see their own wards not being so special as the other one. But since the Richardseche saw itself as an all-city communal brotherhood, they want to avoid this impression of portraying one ward higher than the other. It's a bit like why capitals of countries often don't belong to any other district, state or province either. Berlin is a separate state in Germany. Washington DC is a separate carved-out district that does, not that does not belong to any federal state. Another reason why the house was located here? It was geographically in the middle of the city area at that time. You know what's most important in real estate? Right, location, location, and again location. The house had to be easily 
accessible by foot from all places in the city. There was no subway yet or taxis, and as already mentioned, the Jewish quarter was not a closed ghetto. Jews could theoretically settle in the entire city area, as could Christians in the area where the majority of Jews settled. The plague pogroms of 1348-49 were still far away. Of course, the life of the Jewish community was not easy, sometimes even life-threatening as already happened in 1096 during the crusade program, but there were also phases of comparatively good coexistence. Literally, this can be seen in this very meeting house of the Richardseche, which was located in the eastern part of the Jewish quarter. Until the 14th century, despite the rich ownership, this house of the Richardseche was to remain a very modest building before the later town hall was built here. Not only that the house of the Richardseche itself stands here in the Jewish quarter is special, it really is leaning on the help of the Jewish community. In order for the house to exist here statically and not to collapse, the main beam of the house of the rich uses an adjacent Jewish house to the north as a support. The beam is laying uh, or leaning into the house of the Jewish owners. This, of course, requires trust from both house owners. That was what I meant in the intro, by the way, with uh, the leaning on the Jewish community. Today's modern fire protection, including structural engineers, would be horrified, but that's the way it was back then. How was the Jewish community organized? It represents namely with its existence in Cologne not only a religious community, but is beyond that also an own kind of ward. Even as some of it co-administered their here responsible ward of St. Lawrence. This meant that the Jews had all the tasks and duties that the other wards in Cologne also had. And in part, the Jewish community was even granted more rights. They were allowed to exercise secular jurisdiction among themselves without any interference of the archbishop, the city ruler. This was left entirely to them. Only in the case of crimes such as theft, bodily harm or adultery between a Jew and a Christian did the archbishop reserve the right to pass judgment himself. As a Jewish community, its members were liable to military service and were therefore allowed to carry weapons a right that not many Christians in the city possessed. If each ward in the city had a section of the city wall to defend in case of war and an attack and to maintain and keep in repair in times of peace, this also replied to the Jewish community. The Jews had their own section of the wall for which they were responsible. This also shows that for a certain time in the life of Jews and Christians in the city, was characterized by a certain degree of trust. For it will also have been Cologne's Jewish men on their section of the city wall who successfully repelled the two attacks of Emperor Henry V in 1106 and 1114 at the risk of their own lives. If you want to see the section of the wall that the Jewish community once had to defend in the 12th century, you can still do so today. 
Just go to the Zeughaus in the street Zeughausstraße. At the former building of the Cologne City Museum, you then continue walking with the cathedral behind you, in your, so the cathedral in your back, until you are at the level of the building that is called the Old Guard, a neoclassical building which until recently served the city museum as an annex and a place for special exhibitions. Exactly there was also a small city gate that no longer exists, the so-called Alte Judenforte or Old Jewish Gate. Old because from 1180 the construction of a larger, more extensive city wall was to begin. From then on, the wall section for the Jewish community and the small city gate named after them was located in the northeast of the city near the Rhine at St. Kunibert's Church and today's Theodor Heusring, just an area of the suburb of Niederich. Don't worry, on the homepage I will add maps and pictures to much of what I mention here. Before the invention of modern artillery, with gunpowder, sieges were a laborious and costly undertaking. Either the population was starved out until the besieged gave up, but the besieged were always in danger of starving to death themselves or being destroyed by relief attacks in the rear. Therefore, the attackers often relied on betrayal or bribery within the besieged city or castle. A wall could therefore be as imposing as it was, it was only as effective as the people who guarded it. That was not the case when just such a thing happened. It was not uncommon for an enemy to enter a fortress through bribery or deceit, as in 1085, when the Seljuks were able to snatch the well-fortified and ancient city of Antioch from the Byzantines, today's Antakya in southern Turkey. The fact that an entire section of the war was left to the Jewish community in Cologne on its own responsibility testifies to the trust within the Christian majority population, at least for a certain period of time. What was the further organizational structure of the Jewish community? As a quasi-separate war, the Jewish community also had certain offices to organize itself internally, but also externally. Much of this is already familiar to us from the structure, be it the Wards or the Richardsäche. The community leader was the so-called Judenbischof, so the Jew bishop. However, this contemporary title of Jewish community leader can be misleading. The Jewish bishop did not necessarily have to be a rabbi, and his duties were purely secular. He was the head of the Jewish community and was elected for one year at a time from among the Jewish community. Re-election was permissible and probably occurred frequently. Probably the Judenbischof existed before the 12th century, however this office is documented only in the written sources since 1113 Latin as Episcopus Judeorum. The Jewish shrine book of St. Lawrence named a man named Buningus as the acting Jewish bishop for that year. As a governing body, the Jewish community had what was called the 12th member Judenrat, so the Jewish council. This consisted of several rabbis as well as Jewish scholars and respective male members of the community. So pretty similar to the um, collegiate that you can find in the wards of the city. How do we know all of this? The number of dwellings, the buildings like the mikvah, the institutions or even the individual names 
That, dear people, we owe to the shrine books. Those entries on large sheets of parchment which the citizens of Cologne made and kept independently from the 12th century on. Since especially the ward of St. Lawrence started to keep entries like property lists and legal transactions already around 1130, we get a good insight into the Jewish quarter of that time. Because as far as the shrine books were concerned, the ward of St. Lawrence took over this not only for the Christian, but also Jewish inhabitants of the district. Because geographically, the Jewish quarter was completely in the parish district of St. Lawrence. At first, both Christian and Jewish entries were written on the same sheet of parchment. From 1230 then, each separately in a shrine book of the Christians and one of the Jews. However, this is not be seen as an act of divisiveness. Rather, it was intended to provide both sides with a better overview of the legal transactions between Christians and Jews. The Jewish shrine book of St. Lawrence was kept in Hebrew. The entry was then translated into Latin and copied into the Christian shrine book, or vice versa. This practice shows how great the trust was in business in Cologne between Jews and Christians in Cologne for that time. I said in Cologne two times, didn't I? Well, I don't care. Let's continue. The interesting thing is also that male Jews were probably also active in the governing bodies of the ward of St. Lawrence itself. Thus, the oldest shrine book there testifies of a man named Eckbert with the addition of the Jew, so Eckbert the Jew, after his name that he was one of the two mayors of the normal ward of St. Lawrence, not the ward of the Jewish community. Thus, a Jew had been one of the two annually elected mayors of the ward of St. Lawrence and was also listed as a member of the collegiate of the ward later on. In addition, we also hear of his son, Fordolf. Another Jewish member before the middle of the 12th century was a man named Dietrich, but this was probably a brief exception. Because from 1152 on, no Jews are tested in the leadership circles of the wards of St. Lawrence, nor in other wards in the city. We have here in the 12th century a well-connected Jewish community in the Christian Sancta Colonia, so Holy Cologne. It is considered the largest Jewish community in the empire at that time. But, you guessed it, this relative state of peace, love and harmony was not to last forever. Above all, the averted catastrophe of 1146 showed how thin the line was between harmonious toleration and the threat of annihilation of a Jewish community in Cologne. Especially from the 13th century, the situation becomes worse throughout Christianized Europe. For the decisions of the Lateran Council in 1215 in Rome by the Pope and the bishops of the Church, the Jews are increasingly restricted and marginalized throughout the Christian world. They must now make themselves clearly identifiable as Jews even by their clothing, be it a pointed hat or a colored patch on the top worn. The so-called Jewish star, the Judenstern, from the Nazi era finds its model in this. Before that, one would not necessarily have been able to distinguish a Jew from a Christian on the streets of Cologne or in other cities by the mere sight of his or her clothing. 
Jews were then thus also gradually forced out of almost all professions, especially from the professions that were subject to guilds, and believe me, in late medieval times, nearly everything that is a good job is um, organized in a guild. So, why then did Jews not simply join the guilds? This was impossible as time went on. Guilds saw themselves not only as mere bureaucratic professional associations, but also as religious Christian brotherhoods. So, Jews were thus barred from membership as member of other faith. When we arrive at the year 1300, the situation has changed significantly compared to the 12th century. In 1290, all Jews were expelled from England. In 1306, from France. After renewed toleration against in 1394. In the empire, which was territorially and politically completely fragmented and decentralized in the late Middle Ages, this also happened in many places from the 14th century, especially in cities. The situation for the Jewish community in Cologne also deteriorated. From the year 1300 onwards, the Jewish quarter is now barred with gates at night, and in the east towards the busy old market, the Jews built a large protective wall to the east in 1310. They feared night attacks or arson attacks too much. Those who did not work for the Jewish community, whether as bakers, craftsmen or doctors, were usually left with no other option but to lend money, since they had been pushed out of every other profession. The accusation of usury was to be a dangerous explosive device that always carried the danger of inciting riots against Jews. This would become evident in the outbreak of the plague in 1348. But we will get there another time. That should be it for this episode for now. Despite the darkened outlook, I hope you enjoyed the episode. The violence, exclusion and expulsion of Jews in medieval Europe is an important topic. But I wanted to show with this episode, without wanting to trivialize anything, how much Cologne has been shaped and enriched by Jewish life, that it is an important part of Cologne's history and that for a long time in comparatively peaceful coexistence in the High Middle Ages, all this took place. The Jewish community will of course meet us in the future again and again in the course of this podcast. At the end of the episode, it is time to say thank you again. Many thanks this time to Aisun, Dennis, Joachim, Sabine, Silvia and Simon for your tips via PayPal. As the newest Patreon member, I am happy to announce that Dennis will support the podcast from now on. Thank you very much, Dennis. What served me as a source this time? Well, quite a few things. Of course, the standard work by Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar on Cologne in the High Middle Ages. Then, in, translated in English, between Cathedral and David Starr, Jewish Life in Cologne from the Giddings to Today by Kirsten Serup Bilfeld. Two millennia of Jewish art and culture by Jürgen Wilhelm was also included. So was the book Jewish Cologne, History and Present by Barbara Becker-Jackli. I hope I pronounced this words right. As always, you can find the complete list of literature on my homepage. The next episode 
we'll take a look at the people of the city. How did they live? Who were they? Is it even possible to fully grasp this? We'll give it a try and look primarily at the families of the merchants and the ministerials who set out to further shape Cologne's future history, whether as members of the Richardzeche, the magistrates, or as rich merchants. It is the 12th century where all those names pop up from the later Cologne patricians who leave their lasting mark on the city. Be curious, especially about their funny show names. Until then, have a good time, recommend me further, and auf Wiedersehen.